Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today, we're going to talk with a major researcher on fasting, time-restricted eating, and things like that, and even caloric restriction, which turns out it does work, although calories in, calories out doesn't seem to work in any of my life experiences or any of my research. But funny enough, in a fast with restricted calories, hey, maybe there's something going on there. We're going to dig deep on that. Her name is Leonie Heilbronn, and she's an associate professor who leads the obesity and metabolism group at the Lifelong Health Theme of South Australian Health and Medical Research. That is a mouthful, but basically she's in Adelaide, Australia, and studies this stuff, looking at how do we turn down chronic diseases like type 2 diabetes with nutrition and she really looks at biological pathways, which makes me really want to do this interview because we get to talk about mitochondria and all sorts of signaling molecules. We shouldn't get too technical. I promise I'll explain everything. Um, if you're new to the world of biohacking uh, along the way, if we use some weird analogies or whatever else, but you will learn something here and we're going to dig deep on fasting. Let's get into learning more about fasting from a world-class expert. Leonie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Dave. How did you get into fasting? Right. So this started quite a while ago and it was back when I was a postdoc in the United States, uh, in Louisiana actually. Um, and we had read a paper um, about a mouse study where the mice were uh, put on uh, alternate day fasting. So that's fasting every other day for 24 hours. And these mice really had all of the same benefits of caloric restriction that we know about. So they had um, reduced glucose and insulin levels, so reducing their diabetes risk markers, um, and they, they had um, uh, increased uh, activation of a lot of the pathways as well that are involved with caloric restriction. So that was kind of the first time we'd noticed or realised that fasting perhaps was one of the ways that caloric restriction is or potentially working. Um, and so we did a little study uh, on, I think it was 16 people, um, and they were all um, non-overweight, so just normal, regular 22 25 to 55 year olds, I believe. Um, and we put them on alternate day fasting for three weeks. Um, and some people did amazingly well, lost lots of weight and had great improvements in health. Overall, we saw great improvements in um, glucose and insulin levels uh, and also reductions in cardiovascular risk markers in three weeks. Um, and uh, there were a few people that really hated it um, and didn't do so well, but they still were able to maintain the diet for the for the three-week period. Um, and yeah, that was kind of our first little foray into alternate day fasting. Now you're talking about only having water for 24 hours every other day? Yes. Okay. So that was water only fasting for 24 hours every other day. Uh, and we started the um, fast midnight to midnight as well with that first study. And so some people were actually fasting probably for almost 32 hours by the time they went to bed at night and got up in the morning after a fast day. So it was a long time. And were these people working during that time? Or were they doing their normal physical activities? It seems like most people would get kind of blown out by starting out fasting that way. Uh, yeah, no, everyone kept working. I had We had one uh, woman on the study who was a um, uh, kind of, uh, she was a big runner uh, and she also did a lot of soccer. And so she played two or three soccer games on a fasting day one time. Uh, wow. So 
she, she was she was hardcore. Um, most of us were like I did the study, so we, it was a study literally with no money, uh, and everyone was an employee at the Pennington just about that that did the study. So it was a kind of, it was a pilot trial. Um, we were mostly fit, young, and healthy, um, and. Uh, everyone pretty much was active as well in that trial. So there was no, there were a couple of people actually that were uh, non-exercisers, maybe about five out of the 16 or six out of the 16 were non-exercisers and the rest were exercisers. So it wasn't exclusion criteria when we did it. What's interesting about that is that those are people who are already reasonably fit and had working metabolisms because they weren't overweight and I've found that a lot of people, the 42% of people who are overweight or have meaningful weight to lose, they oftentimes get the, the hangry, hypoglybitchy, you know, I, I can't do that and live my life <laughs> when they start doing 24-hour water fasting. So I've been looking for ways to keep your brain working while getting into that, which has been a big, a big focus. Uh, but the goal would be that you ought to be able to just do that. Uh, and you said water only, but... Uh, uh, that was no coffee, no tea, no anything. That one uh, at was all in the so study? that first study we did was nothing, okay. nothing at all. So that was water only fasting, um, and that was three weeks uh, in in length. So the subsequent studies we've done, uh, we've um, done them more in overweight people, not in in young, fit, healthy people. So all of my other trials have been in 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 overweight people, um, and we have allowed coffee and tea, um, and that kind of we have allowed a limited amount of sugar free drinks as well during the fasting day, really just to increase compliance. Um, so the, and the subsequent studies we've done have been three days a week of fasting um, and not doing alternate day just because it's a bit of a mess. I think people, a lot of people, when you're doing alternate day fasting, it's hard to plan your life because one day you're yeah. doing, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and the next day it's Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. So it's just, it's more difficult to, to figure out to plan ahead. Um, whereas if you're doing Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or your choice, uh, it's just easier to know what's going on, when, when to go out, when to, when to stay home, um, and yeah. that sort of thing. It, it feels like getting compliance out of fasting. Look, if you're really obese, like 100 pounds overweight like I was, or you have high risk of some disease, you're just going to disrupt your life to do it. And there's a lot of people like, oh, you know, I've got a little bit too much going on. Uh, but for that, making it a workable schedule seems like a major challenge with compliance. So mm. that's been a, a big focus of this where you don't have to always stick to a strict schedule. So I, I love that you're like, just do three days because then you can line it up and your weekends work and that extra day probably wasn't worth the trouble. Yeah. And it's that how much trouble is it that's a big focus for everything because you know, we could do everything perfectly and then where would we end yeah, up? Yeah, you, you've got to be able to do it in the end of the day. Now, one of the other studies that I'm super excited to hear about, you're looking at 210 people with obesity comparing intermittent fasting and restricting calories. How right. far along is that study? Because I'm really hopeful <laughs> to see the results, but can you share? Soon, soon, yeah. So the last patient finishes November 21. So uh, it's it's uh, it's an 18-month trial. So the the we do a six-month really active phase where we see them a lot and we help them out. Um, and that phase is over. Um, and then they have a 12-month follow-up after that period where we really let them go and say, uh, we, we say, you know, try to continue doing this diet without our help. Um, and we bring them back 12 months later to see how they're going. So that phase does not finish until November 2021. So probably not till 2022 will we have the study out. So they take a long time, it's, but I'm looking, yeah. I'm excited by the results. 
So early results that are not, you know, statistically valid and all, does one seem to work better than the other or you just have no clue yet? Uh, we really don't have a clue yet. We have, um, you know, statisticians on this trial that blind everything. Um, and yeah, we, we don't, we don't have a handle on that at all. Unfortunately, uh, we have done no, you know, no analysis on anything. So um, okay. we have to wait till the end of the trial. You're super blinded then. Well, yeah. kudos to you for, for doing, uh, doing good science. And I'm sad because I'm pretty sure that what you're going to see, especially with a one-year follow-up like that, is the people who do calorie restriction gain all their weight back because all you have to do is watch The Biggest Loser <laughs> and just go a year out from everyone who loses weight on that show and they're all fatter than they were. In my own life, you know, I lose 20 pounds, gain 30, lose 30, gain 40, most likely because of ghrelin signaling. Um, but then you do fasting or you do anything with ketones, it seems like it becomes a non-issue. So I'm, I'm very excited yeah, I mean, I'm to see those results. I'm 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 hopeful too, but I don't know. So there's only one real trial, or maybe is there two now that that have done this in a, in large populations, um, and they've shown that um, there wasn't any difference either between the calorie restriction and intermittent fasting groups at at the tw they've done 12 month follow up, not 18 month follow up. At 12 but, Interesting. Yeah, they didn't see any difference between the calorie restriction and intermittent fasting groups. So I think that intermittent fasting uh, really works for some individuals, um, but it doesn't it doesn't perhaps work for all individuals. So there's there's that you know, and we don't let them choose when they do these research studies. So they get randomized into fasting or caloric restriction, uh, and they don't get to say, okay, I think that I'd suit fasting better or I'd suit calorie restriction better. And I think that that some people, and I'm one of them, I, I prefer fasting and being able to uh, eat what I like on the weekends sort of thing and then, you know, go hard during the week. Um, and yeah, so I think that some people really suit it and then some people get really grumpy during the fasting period and they just, from what I've seen, don't, don't habituate. So some people, it takes them a little while to get used to fasting and then some people just maybe never get used to it. Do you track what people eat before they start a fast or how they end the fast, like what kind of food they're using? Uh, yeah, so we have done, well, we are doing that now. So the, the last study that we did, we actually provided all the food to people. So we wanted to really just control absolutely everything. Um, wow. and we were trying to look at a lot of pathways. Yeah, so we, we gave them all of their food on the calorie restriction diet or we gave them all of their food on the intermittent fasting diet. Uh, whereas this new study, it's it's their choice. So we're, we're doing food diaries and, and tracking that sort of thing. So we'll have a better handle on that with the next trial. My working hypothesis is that the people who don't acclimate to fasting are eating foods that cause cravings right before they start a fast. And when they tweak what they eat to avoid that, suddenly they can go through a fast. But if they eat the wrong stuff before the fast, they're just a train wreck. I, I know I'm like that. I, I can. I did a 72-hour fast a couple of weeks ago just because it was kind of convenient. Like <laughs> I've just I've got it. I did six or seven shows, and I'm just I'm okay. But then. You know, if I was to eat something that was wrong for me, like a big old kale salad or something, I'm going to be ravenous and then it's going to be distracting. And then, uh, you know, I'm probably going to be less emotionally resilient than I normally would be. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I haven't studied that, but I don't uh, yeah. disagree with you there. I think that that is uh, potentially, potentially true. And, um, and yeah, it's, I, I don't actually know what the right food is to do that either. So it would be interesting to, to, to learn that, to see if there is something, something to that. I will send you fast this way if you'd like to. It is not an academic book, but it has a lot of references 
uh, I'd be happy to, to do that just to give you some ideas to think about the direction of it. But I, I find there's five big categories of foods that are triggers for some people and not others. Uh, and this is from working with very large numbers of people over the last 10 years on the bulletproof diet side of things, which is like, what are the triggers? But lectins are a major trigger for some people and different types of lectins for others. And they cause you know, perturbations in uh, ghrelin, uh, insulin, and even like overall anxiety. So if you get inflammation from a nightshade vegetable because of your genetics, you're going to have a craving. But the next person doesn't have those genetics, eats them, and they're just fine. <laughs> so it's really hard to tease out. You've got oxalic acid is another one um, that causes just environmental perturbations in people. You know, raw spinach and kale can be, be cravings. You've got uh, phytates. Um, and things like that uh, that come in whole grains for some people a major issue other people not that big of a deal you can give one person beans or, or whole grains and they're fine the next person's like i'm going to eat a horse <laughs> and so you get into these buckets histamine will do it too fermented tofu full of histamine people are histamine intolerant man they're going to need a cookie right <laughs> and like they cannot fast without turning into a jerk but then teasing those out and the final one is if you're eating things like mycotoxins or high omega-6 oils um, both of those can cause can cause cravings in people, uh, as well as things they're allergic to. So, for me, it, it's been like, how do I get you know a million people to figure out what's doing it for them so they can eat everything else? And that's that's been a challenge. But I do not publish studies the way you do. Although a few people have worked on studies using the bulletproof guidelines, but I I imagine if you clustered for those things, especially the first three or four, you're probably like, that's funny. People eat pork, which is high in histamine. And those are the ones that have a hard time fasting. And the ones who aren't eating pork before their fast or processed lunch meats or whatever, they don't have a hard time. So I could predict those clusters and I'd bet on it, but I could totally be wrong too. I, I bet you'd find another cluster I never even thought about. Yeah. Well, I don't tend to look down at the micronutrient level to see what, what's going on there. So when we're, I mean, we're starting some studies where we're looking at macronutrient timing. So, you know, trying to put carbohydrates in the, in the morning, when you are, I guess, most biologically ready to to have carbohydrates, you know, you have a big insulin secretion in the, in the morning, you're most insulin sensitive in the morning. So carbohydrates are probably the time when if you're going to have carbohydrates, you should probably have them in the morning. But we're, we're studying that now and also, you know, protein. So maybe there's some evidence of having it later in the day. It's not great evidence yet, but maybe um, maybe that's the best time to have protein. So there's there's that kind of timing of macronutrients, and I think that's an emerging Ooh. emerging field right now where where timing of things, um, you know, timing of medicines is really exciting field right now as well. So all of all of the the, the medications that people take um, is beginning to be an appreciation that maybe we're not looking at when they're taking the medications, and and that could be um, we might not be getting the optimal best bang for buck um, and the same thing with with carbohydrates and, and protein. So, um, yeah, I think that that is interesting, but um, I, I don't look at the micronutrients. We just kind of focus on the, the whole level. Um, the uh, whole level, I guess. yeah. The, um, the timing thing is something that you've definitely studied, you know, time-restricted feeding. And I was interested, your first study was midnight to midnight, but no one, at least no one healthy eats at midnight on a regular basis. <laughs> we'll put it that way. That's sort of the, the worst time. Um, yeah, no, we didn't intend people to start and stop eating then. It was more like that the, the, they would just go to bed and then wake up in the morning. Um, we actually had one patient in that study that did tell us he stayed up till midnight all the time and ate at, it, ate at midnight. Um, and so, but everyone else was pretty much going to bed uh, and and waking up in the morning and having breakfast. So our time for our fasting studies, um, we've actually tried to do it in the morning. So um, 8 a.m. to 8 a.m. 
um, and in our second trial, we're doing allowing an eating period of 8 a.m. Till, till lunchtime and then fasting um, for the rest of the day. Um, so biologically, that is probably the best time to be, you know, so you're kind of kickstarting your metabolism for the day. Um, and But there is no studies really trying to test that hypothesis. There is one. Um, Krista Baraday did a study where she was um, – she gave people fasting from breakfast, no, from lunch or from dinner, or, or they had breakfast, tiny meals at breakfast, lunch and dinner as breaking the fast. Um, and they didn't see any difference between the three arms, so it didn't matter. Um, but it was a really small study, so it wasn't a lot of people mm. in each arm, um, and so it really hasn't been tested. We're probably one of the few groups that have shown that fasting is better than calorie restriction um, for health um, and perhaps it's because we put breakfast first. So we, we, we run at breakfast to breakfast um, rather than dinner to dinner, which is probably the easier thing to do. So it's probably easier to biologically, you're more hungry in the evening than you are in the morning. But we've run it the other way around um, and we see that intermittent fasting uh, in our hands beats caloric restriction um, in terms of health outcomes. But um, maybe it's because we've done the fasting from breakfast time. It, it's a really interesting thing that the chronobiology uh, like signaling pathways uh, that I've looked at, uh, it's pretty clear that if you wanted to do an ideal uh, fasting window, you'd eat sometime, uh, I would say not too early in the morning, but sometime after the sun comes up uh, until about two. Uh, however, most, <laughs> most people, it doesn't work from a, uh, from a livability perspective. So I'm like, if you're really sick, um, do that. Otherwise, having an early dinner, as early as you can get away with, you know, five five thirty, and eating, you know, between noon or two, and that it works. But if you wanted it to work a little bit better and be harder to do, you shift your eating earlier. Or if you have a hard time going to sleep at night, protein before bed raises orexin, which is the same stuff that modafinil raises. So protein before bed in high doses can be stimulating. So I, I have found that generally moderate non-sugar carbs um, in your last meal of the day tend to improve sleep for a variety of proposed reasons, um, but that people get more cravings if they have the carbs in the morning, even though you're more insulin sensitive in the morning. And it's it's such a, a mishmash where I feel like if you're doing any of these windows, you're still getting 80, 90% of the benefits, but there is an optimal window and you might be the person who most who, who is going to identify the perfect window first from what I've seen. Are there is there ahead of ahead of you in the publication schedule that you're you're aware of? Uh, we did a pilot trial, so we compared um, early time restricted feeding with delayed time restricted feeding. So we asked people to eat from eight till five, uh, yeah. or we got them to eat from twelve till nine, just because um, we kind of wanted to have a big gap. I wouldn't yeah. normally say nine o'clock is a good cutoff. I would say probably a little it, earlier. Um, but we're yeah, trying that's, to that's way too late. <laughs> yeah, we're trying to have a reasonable length eating window, uh, and and a doable eating window, but uh, also have differences between the two arms. And when we did that, and, you know, this is a pilot trial. It was a week long. It was in 16 patients. So there's lots of caveats, uh, right. but we saw it didn't matter. So both of them improved glucose tolerance um, yeah. just as well as each other. Um, and there was no difference between the groups. So they were both better than baseline and they, they, had, they were exactly the same improvement in glucose tolerance. So 
in our hands in a very small trial, it, it they were both effective. Um, when you say that there was no difference in health outcomes, how are you measuring health outcomes in the studies? Like, what does that mean? So a lot of mine are more focused around diabetes risk. So we do we did a glucose tolerance test essentially. So people okay. um, it was, uh, and we looked at the glucose and insulin responses to that. So they were both improved by around 20%, so quite big improvements um, wow. when they did time-restricted eating for just one week. So um, they had these big improvements in glucose tolerance. Now, that's kind of the order of magnitude that you see when you do, or it's bigger than what you see when you when you give metformin, right? So metformin is a drug <laughs> um, that people with diabetes take to help improve um, their, their glucose control. Um, and we saw that time-restricted eating had at least as good as if improvement in that, in, in not in a diabetes population, they were just in an overweight um, population who had, uh, they're all men with greater uh, big waist circumference, so big tummies. Uh, so they're in the diabetes okay. risk factor range, but they didn't have diabetes. Uh, why did you do all men? Only a third of fasting studies include women. Uh, I think it, when they're pilot trials, and this is where we're at with time-restricted eating, is that the big studies haven't has uh, really come out yet. There was one last year um, that was uh, still in not a huge number of patients where they did um, time-restricted eating versus control. That's the first big trial. So um, everyone else has been doing, you know, we've, we've got to, we have to get the funding. So we have to run all these pilot trials in, in really small populations before we then get funded to actually run the big studies. And so we're at the stage okay. now where I've got funding to run a time, big time-restricted feeding trial. We're starting this year, um, but it takes, it takes a long time. So um, yeah, we, we tend to run a, behind a little bit just because it takes a long time to get the funding and a long time to do these studies. And the big study that will be men and women? This, yep, we have both. Okay, good, good. Thanks for, thanks for doing that. So many studies are done on, you know, college undergrads 20 years ago where it was pretty much all, you know, young, reasonably healthy <laughs> men yeah. for the most part. And yeah. it's, it's fine if it's an early trial because, you know, as long as we're, we're sorting it out for the, the big groups. Yeah. Another thing that you talk about in your research is one of my favorite compounds, um, NAD. I've talked mm -hmm. about this in my aging book and I've, I've done intravenous NAD. Can you talk about what fasting or time-restricted feeding does for NAD levels? Yeah, so we have seen, and this is um, really just in mice at this point, but we've seen that um, that uh, fasting or time-restricted eating, in this case, um, increased NAMPT, which is an enzyme that makes NAD. And so the fasting increased the levels of NAMPT, and then we saw an, also an increase in NAD as a result. So in mice, uh, in the liver, uh, we saw a change. So there was a, there was a good effect of time-restricted eating to, to boost those levels. And, yeah, you can take... Um, uh, things like nicotinamide or riboside and things like that 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 can in, that can boost those levels uh, as well in the blood. Uh, I've definitely had a few guests talking about nicotinamide riboside, nicotine mononucleotide, taking NAD orally and injecting it subcutaneously and with patches yeah. and intravenously. And I've done all of the above. And I'm not uh, opposed to doing the other nicotine-related thing. Actually, nicotine. Okay. <laughs> that was one milligram of nicotine. <laughs> As an anti-aging metabolic enhancing substance, not tobacco. <laughs> so, <Right. laughs> it's. Uh, uh, have you seen anyone looking at the effects of nicotine during time restricted eating? No, I had not even aware that that did that. So I hadn't, I hadn't, I hadn't looked into nicotine at all. Sorry. Oh. 
Can't well, I mean, it's me. the same receptors in, in the brain that you were referring yeah. to, but a guy from Vanderbilt has been looking at nicotine and publishing papers since 1987, um, showing okay. that it reverses Alzheimer's disease and it raises PGC1-alpha, which is you know that exercise yeah. uh, mimetic thing. Uh, so as an anti-aging, very low-dose substance, it seems to have efficacy. But I'm I'm sort of wondering if that's uh, something that's highly addictive, I right? So <laughs> that's um, a oh problem. no, it, it's not addictive at all. I, no, I'm just kidding. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm take another one. It nicotine's addictive, but without smoking and all the smoking additives, it has a three-day washout period similar to coffee. Okay. Um, where it's but smoking with all the flavorings and especially vaping, it's way more addictive than yeah. straight nicotine. So I've started stop. Started the psychological stop aspect as well as the yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, for three days you get you get cranky if, if you're used to it. And I'm talking one to four milligrams a day. A cigarette has like 20. So very, very different. Loaded. Yeah, but I, okay. I've always I haven't, wondered. I haven't looked into this. <laughs> okay, good deal. But when you t- we talk about nicotinamide, I'm like, hey, that first yeah, part yeah. of that makes me, makes me happy. Yeah. Um, you do have a, a study in overweight women, though, that you, you've done as well, right? Yeah. On Tell me about that. So yeah. yeah, we this is the one where I was just mentioning before where we 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 fed them. This is the one where we fed them all of the foods. So we had four groups of women. We had women who were were randomised to intermittent fasting with caloric restriction. We had a caloric restriction group, so they were energy matched, um, and provided all their foods. And then we had a group of intermittent fasting people that were not energy restricted, so no caloric restriction. Uh, and then we had the control group. So the, the intermittent fasting group fasted for three days per week from 8 a.m. So they had breakfast and then they fasted for 24 hours. And then um, and then the next day, ate, the intermittent fasting restricted people ate at about energy balance. And that is providing the same amount of calories as 70% restriction every day. But these are all women though, right? Just to all be women. super... Okay, that that's really unusual because not that many people have done women fasting studies, especially with the degree of comparing seventy percent of normal calories, one hundred percent of normal calories. Yeah, kind of summarize yeah. the results for listeners because th- this is really important science. Well, we saw that intermittent fasting seventy, so the caloric restriction intermittent fasting really it out, it outperformed caloric restriction in terms of weight loss and in terms of improving health. So it was unexpected. We did not. We thought that providing all the foods to everyone and uh, we did, actually didn't want to get weight loss. We wanted to have exactly the same amount of weight loss in both the groups so we could see whether intermittent fasting is beating caloric restriction without being different for body weight. And, you know, the science never works out as you plan it exactly. But So we did see that the intermittent fasting group lost a little bit more weight than the caloric restriction group. And they had better improvements in their health, so re- greater reductions in diabetes risk markers and greater reductions in cardiovascular risk markers than the calorie restriction group. So, um, yeah, we, we proved our hypothesis, but we did get a little bit more weight loss than we wanted in one group. So that makes us not be able to say, is it the weight loss or is it the fasting, which is exactly what we wanted to do, <laughs> uh, which is which is better? So um, yeah, it was a little bit uh, disappointing in the end. But um, the the interesting for the thing women we saw, in the study, the women in the study though, it wasn't disappointing at all because most people overweight are happy to lose some weight. So you did, you did get a great outcome for the people in the trial, but the data yeah. hid from you. Okay, that's funny. And, and what 
what we saw really was they were doing great on the fasting days. So our ladies in that study, um, you know, it was an eight-week trial. Um, it wasn't long long term. Um, and in this case, I think more than 50% were very happy to do it. I think intermittent fasting was very new when we ran that trial too. So it had really only just come out. Michael Mosley's book uh, had was, came out during the trial. Um, and so it was all over the media and they were excited to be a part of this study. Um, and so I think that um, maybe that had something to do with it. I don't, I don't know, but they, they, they were very um, adherent and, and they, they had trouble eating on their eating days enough, all the food we gave them. So they weren't actually that hungry. They had their fasting day. They did great on it. They were really compliant. Uh, and then they got to their eating day and they didn't eat all the food we gave them. So that's why they lost that little bit more weight, I think, than than the calorie restriction group. I don't think it was magic. I don't think that they had, you know, super metabolisms um, or um, anything like that. But but maybe there were some appetite changes that makes them not be so hungry. Uh, and potentially it's ketones. Potentially it's ghrelin. We don't we don't know um, that that they are you know even they're not that hungry in the next day. They can't they can't overeat. They don't want to overeat. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. The hunger suppression part um, of, uh, of fasting is very interesting. When I was, this is about 12 years ago, I was working out the principles on the Bulletproof Diet, which is a cyclical keto thing with intermittent fasting and a little bit of time restriction in it. And... I said, I'm going to eat 4,500 calories a day, uh, but generally uh, either have intermittent fasts for breakfast or only have fat and nothing else at breakfast. And it was so hard to eat that much food because you're just not hungry. But the reason I was eating so much is I was trying to say, I'm eating enough calories to gain 20 pounds, but I'm only going to gain three pounds. Therefore, the calories in calories out equation is just flawed. But what I did was I lost weight. <laughs> <laughs> and I kept losing weight even on a stupid amount of calories, which this is not the Bulletproof Diet, though, guys, for your listening. Um, I don't recommend you overfeed at all. It's not good for you to overfeed. There's lots of evidence it's bad for you. Um, but I was just sort of trying to disprove something. Uh, and I did it for probably longer than was smart uh, because I felt really good and I had a ton of energy and I lost weight. But you can do it eating when you're only hungry and magically you probably do get caloric restriction uh, without noticing or caring which is the whole goal versus like when, when you're obese and you're saying, I'm just going to eat, you know, rice cakes and, you know, low fat puffs of something or another. You're just ravenous all the time and it's very hard to maintain compliance. And then it messes with all sorts of things like blood sugar. So I, I know that there's like, we're circling around with all this research that there's something magic that's happening here, but we aren't certain exactly what all the pathways are. No. Right. No, we're not certain um, at this point. And, and yeah, it, it could definitely be the ketones coming up. And, and I mean, we know that, you know, from all of the LCD diets that are out there and and, um, and and how that works, we don't know. But 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 the LCD diets, you know, they really bring up the ketone 
there was the liquid calorie diets um, and and your paleo type diets bring up ketones and they are in humans anyway suppressing hunger um, and uh, how how that works really has not because it doesn't seem to work so well in mice and so they can't test the mechanisms quite so well as they can do uh, in a mouse model. Have you ever looked at uh, ketone levels directly during any of these? Uh, yes. So we um, always measure ketone levels um, with the okay. women with the women's study. Yes. So they're they're definitely up, um, and they're up. Maybe it depends. I mean, the longer you fast, the more they go up. So when we did the first study with um, alternate day fasting way back in two thousand five, and they actually fasted. Uh, for almost 32 hours, you know, their ketone levels were sevenfold higher. Um, ketones start to come up at around 16 hours after you start to fast um, and they keep going up from there. So the longer you fast, the higher your ketone levels go. Um, but it's interesting, there's a lot of variation in that. So when we look at our ladies um, and they're, you know, they're telling us they're fasting um, and some, some, of the, some of the ladies have big increases in ketones with a 24-hour fast and some of them only go up by that small amount. Maybe they got 0.1 and some of them go up 0.4, 0.5. And so you see there's a big there's a big variation in individual changes in ketones. And this is when we were providing their foods to them. So it wasn't what they were eating the day before. The other thing we were seeing was that during the week, so when we get them to fast on Monday, Wednesday and Friday, by Friday their ketone levels are kind of higher than they were on Monday, so that third fast in the week. Um, and they had, uh, and I guess they reset a little bit on the weekend by having that two days of eating, so on that Saturday, Sunday, so they were kind of back down uh, again on that Monday. So so I think doing that third day of fasting per week, um, I, I think that it, it's kind of additive along the way. I found some research uh, I've put in a couple of my books, and I don't remember where it was done, but they were finding a level of 0.38 in the blood for ketones was affecting CCK and 0.48 was affecting ghrelin. So you could raise CCK at 0.38. So I've always said, look, do whatever it takes to get your ketones to 0.5. And if fasting alone does it, if not, MCT oil works just fine. But once you hit 0.5, you just stop thinking about food. And then Mm -hmm. fasting, it just doesn't matter. So I'm- Are you you doing this by urinary ketones or are you doing this, like, was that, that was a study? this was a study I, I don't remember. Um, it was pro- with that level with a, you know, point, a second decimal point almost has to be a, a blood ketone, not a urinary yeah, ketone because right. you yeah, can't yeah. get, yeah. can't get right. good stuff. The idea there that uh, for people who don't get a ketone bump, you're just at point one, it takes more willpower. <laughs> and so I'm like, how do I take what, what little we know, which is way more than we used to and turn it into actionable stuff. So people don't get hangry during the day uh, mm. because that was always my issue when I was really heavy and, and I've heard it from so many people and uh, you know, we're, we're both kind of getting these little illuminating facts that are out there and then saying, Oh, which ones matter? <laughs> so what is your favorite or what is the most interesting of all of the metabolites or compounds that you're seeing affected by fasting? Like what, which one intrigues you the most? Hmm. I mean, they, I mean, I think they all interact a lot of times too. I, don't know that I want to hang everything on a ketone. I have 
you know, so we've tried to, so with, with our human studies, so you'll try and look at things that predict the change. So you'll say, okay, let's look at the change in the ketones and look at if they correlate with the change in the weight loss. Or let's look at the change in fatty acids and, and, and or the change in amino acids and say, do they relate to those things? And, you know, we haven't seen anything to me that's going to put me in one direction. But, you know, again, I'm going to hang my hat on the new study coming up, I think, because it's big um, and we should okay. be able to answer more of these questions. So I'm hoping that that, that will do it. Um, but, yeah, I haven't been able to hang a hat on something at this point, unfortunately, for you, Dave, or, or I'd be uh, publishing a lot better papers, I think. <laughs> a lot better oh, well, you, you definitely aren't certain <laughs> yet. But let's say that you had to hang your hat somewhere right yeah. now. And, yeah. and if you were going to, you were going to guess, this is always the hardest thing for true scientists yeah. uh, to answer. Cause like, but I don't know for sure, but you're going to place no. a bet. Like I, I'm going to give you a million dollars and you got to bet on something. Where would you put it? <laughs> I don't want to. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's okay to be wrong. You just lose the bet. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, you're right. I, um, one thing. Do you know, because I haven't really measured it yet. I'm going to, I'm going to go back to the NAD. I'm going to go back oh, to the NAD. Oh, you are. Interesting. And, uh, okay. Yeah. I think that that is uh, a pathway that's really super interesting um, that is activating a lot of things. But the other thing that we're doing in this study is is looking at autophagy. So autophagy, autophagy as you mentioned before, and, and I guess it's kind of hard to explain, but it's kind of like this uh, cellular self-eating process. So when you're fasting or when you restrict amino acids, you activate um, or you inhibit mTOR and you activate autophagy. And autophagy goes around and it chews up all of the broken bits in your cells and it makes energy out of them. Um, now, we know that autophagy is activated in mice when they fast, but we really don't know what's happening and whether 20 hours or 24 hours or how many hours are necessary to activate autophagy in humans. Um, and the other thing you need to look at is not just the markers of autophagy, but how it is changing when you challenge it. And so we're taking blood samples from our patients and we're challenging them with chloroquine, uh, which uh, inhibits autophagy. So we're looking at their ability to kind of quickly shut off autophagy or to activate autophagy in the flip side. And so we're looking on fasting days and on eating days and in calorie restriction and in fasting. And so I'm kind of really excited about those results as well. Um, and so um, we've, again, we've, uh, we've actually finished collecting bloods for that, for that sub-study of this trial. Um, and they're going to be run hopefully this year. Um, but yeah, so uh, all the bloods are collected and they've all been treated with their chloroquine and, and we're going to be excited to see whether we're, we're changing autophagy also in, in our humans when we do fasting versus calorie restriction. Oh, I can't wait to see the results of that study. Have you ever personally used uh, metformin or rapamycin or any of the other you know, advanced senolytic autophagy kind of things during a fast? Or do you sort of leave that for the mice? Yeah, no, I haven't. I couldn't okay. tell you what they're what they're like. I have a friend that does metformin periodically, and he likes it, but I haven't. I haven't tried that. No. I uh, I first went on metformin for about three years when the first trials came out in two thousand three that said it was a caloric restriction mimetic, and I met the team from Biomarker Pharmaceuticals who had published that first research, and. I just, I didn't feel that good on it. And I, now there's some evidence that it you know, inhibits, uh, I think 
cytochrome 2 or something, so, some kind of mitochondrial mm -hmm. inhibition. Yeah. And it's it, a mild it, mitochondrial poison. Yeah. And that doesn't mean it doesn't make you stronger, but probably taking it every day isn't good. And taking it when you exercise isn't really that good. And taking it during a fast might be good. But mm -hmm. it, I, I'm hopeful that over the next few years, we get more info about the proper timing of metformin and these other things like rapamycin, the, um, the anti-aging yeah. substance. Um, on metformin, I had already lost a lot of the weight that I wanted to lose. And let's see, this was back in mm -hmm. 2003. So I was probably about, I, I think I was mostly, I would have been doing my vegan diet phase then, which was a very bad move. <laughs> I probably lost weight from malnutrition and excessive, all sorts of toxins. That was not a good outcome, uh, even though I was a very careful vegan with lots of blenders and whatever. Um, so it was probably confounded that way. Uh, but I, I've gone on and off it since then, and it, I've never felt great on it. And so maybe it just doesn't agree with me, but I, I'm happy to take it once a week, but I decided it wasn't a regular thing. There's a there's a definite, you know, so they see responders and non-responders with metformin in diabetes all the time. So there's people um, that just really don't respond. Uh, and I guess it's genetics. Uh, they don't really have a way to pick them, except for if it's not working quickly, they might as well try something else. Um, and so there is a definite uh, degree of responders in individuals with metformin. Um, that could be it as well. And there's probably some genetic things, some microbiome thing, and who the heck knows. Um, you published something in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism just last year in 2020, talking about impaired lipid metabolism that can, you could reverse with caloric restriction, but you looked at IF versus CR. Strangely, it looks like a 24-hour fast impaired insulin sensitivity. Can you talk about what you found uh, there? Yeah, so definitely um, we are seeing that. And, I don't, and I'm not surprised really. So fasting always impairs insulin sensitivity. I did. I actually thought 24 hours would, wouldn't be enough to do it. Um, this is, uh, again, in women we tested this. So 24 hours of fasting is enough to impair insulin sensitivity. So you need to. So when you're not eating, you need to spare glucose. And so one of the things that happens when you fast is you raise, uh, so you have lots of lipolysis, lots of fat burning going on, and you raise your lipid levels up. Uh, you, you know, you drop your insulin levels. Uh, you um, have the, yeah, the non-esterified fatty acids levels come up in your blood. Um, and there are lots of, lots of things going on, but you will induce insulin resistance in muscle. Um, it was transient, so it was gone by the next day when they fed. Um, so we saw this transient switch in insulin sensitivity, insulin resistance, insulin sensitivity, insulin resistance. Um, okay. And so I'm not terribly surprised. The test that we do for that also is looking at maximal insulin sensitivity. So you're kind of looking at the, it's not a physiological test. We shove somebody full of insulin um, and you're really looking at really high levels. Um, and so, and we're testing how they're, how sensitive they are to that insulin, to that maximal insulin dose, um, how their muscles are, are insulin sensitive. So it's not something your body actually normally sees. Uh, so we're retesting that using a meal tolerance test in this study. Again, so we're going to do a meal tolerance test on a fasting day, and I want to see whether we're changing how the body is handling glucose in response to refeeding, essentially, on that. To, on to that a normal step. refeeding, not the, the frappuccino with 200 grams of sugar refeeding. Right, right. So <laughs> okay. a normal, Well, we're still doing a milkshake, so it's still a little bit abnormal. Um, but, um, 
yeah, so we're doing, it's quite a challenge still, I think. So we, we, we kind of are maxing the system a little bit. Maybe we shouldn't have gone. So if we'd done a, if we'd done a solid meal as people normally would eat, uh, we might see something different again. But we, we chose to do a, a milkshake just because it's kind of uh, easy to standardize in the lab. There was a, a recent big media blitz about, oh, the worst thing you could do for breakfast, and, and it had to do with drinking coffee before breakfast or after breakfast. But their definition of breakfast was a straight sugar, like a glucose tolerance test. Like, well, it was really coffee yeah. before a glucose tolerance test or coffee after a glucose tolerance <laughs> test, yeah. uh, which one was better for you. But that was not a breakfast any human would eat, even at yeah. you know a donut shop. So I was, I was surprised. But it did look like coffee certainly was having you know, a negative effect right before a huge amount of sugar. Um, any ideas on how important coffee is during a fast? I know you allow it and I know it doubles ketone production, but kind of what, what's your, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, we can, well, I mean, we allow it for, to make people happy, <laughs> I guess, you know, we know that <laughs> okay. if you, if you don't get coffee, when you normally have coffee, you have a headache. So, you know, it's, it's like a, it's just like nicotine. It's like a drug and you will, you will have, a caffeine withdrawal during your fasting day, which is already, you know, hard. So to, to not allow coffee during that, that day is is going to have a negative effect on people who normally drink coffee. But it also gives them something to, to fill their belly and do while other people are eating so they can have a cup of tea or a coffee. Um, and that's yeah. why we do it rather than than trying to activate or double any pathways or anything like that. So it's more of a – we do it for a psychological aspect and okay. to help people stick to otherwise fasting. I have found that black coffee absolutely helps with fasting adherence because of the social aspects you just talked about. And then there's the, the caffeine doubling ketone production. So the people who are at point one might get to point two if they have you know a couple small cups of coffee. Uh, which for the low ketone responders is maybe enough to to feel the difference, um, and I I just I know I'll have to betting look against whether they were coffee drinkers or not the ones that didn't change. Actually, <laughs> it'd, I be, have it'd a be look at my data. I would want to know. Yeah, <laughs> I um I, I just I've always found betting against coffee in general is a bad idea. When I opened my coffee shop in Santa Monica, the Bulletproof Cafe across the street, there was a place called gunpowder tea and it was kind of funny because yeah. we had bulletproof and gunpowder but they had a big sign up front that said no coffee here and, right. and i'm like that can't be good for business because they're yeah. all going to come over to my side of the street and the other <laughs> store did close <laughs> so <laughs> don't bet did against you sell coffee tea as well <laughs> yeah we have bulletproof tea you know we'll, we'll make you a matcha yeah. with uh, butter and mct oil and stuff in it um, okay and and also without butter if you want it that way I've but it was tried coffee with butter i'm sorry <laughs> Doesn't You've got to give it a shot. It'll, okay. uh, it, it, you'll try it, and literally, <laughs> it's actually really big in Australia. Uh, Bulletproof has always been big there, but then uh, you'll try it, and all of a sudden, you'll want to run a trial on it because of what it does cognitively. It, it's, uh, it, it's like the anti-hangry thing for for doing fasting. Uh, all and right. There's certainly no amino acids in there, um, especially if you make it with ghee versus butter. Um, so <laughs> it's not going to activate. It's not going to break autophagy by amino acid metabolism. That's for sure. And it doesn't all raise right. insulin in third-party studies. So there's that, but you know there there's stuff we don't know because there haven't been enough you know clinical trials saying you know what does it do for instance to the microbiome specifically and what mm -hmm. impact would that have on firmicutes versus bacteriodetes which are independent factors and, and there's all kinds of neat stuff to learn so um, give me time I'll do some more research because I at this <laughs> point so many people have lost a ton of weight I know the hunger effects but the why is something I'm still circling around. Yeah. 
You also looked at in a study, I think you touched on it earlier, but I wanted to review it with, uh, with listeners. You talked about, this is from the Obesity Journal, um, you looked at time-restricted feeding early versus time-restricted feeding delayed, which we talked about earlier, and then just overall whether they did it or, or didn't. Um, but it was interesting because you were looking at continuous glucose monitoring, something that I, I do as well with the Levels Health device. And um, what did you guys find uh, around just overall uh, time-restricted fasting regardless? What, what, was the, what was the positive outcomes when you didn't pay attention to the time of day? So um, with the continuous glucose monitors, so um, the uh, so they were down. So they you, we had reductions in. Uh, oh, sorry, that's we've done another study since we haven't published it yet. We're about to, um, and the. So with that study, we saw overnight glucose levels were down, definitely, but they were up a bit during the day, so that we didn't see any overall change in 24-hour glucose. Um, but really, we saw a swing back to circadian patterns. So if we looked at the continuous glucose monitors at baseline, they were kind of, you know, just all over the place here. Whereas if you um, did time-restricted eating, you really brought a 24-hour cycle back into glucose so that you had low glucose levels at night and higher glucose levels of the day. And that's probably what we're supposed to have. Um, in our next study, which um, we'll hopefully have out soon, we did see that 24-hour glucose, um, uh, mean glucose was was uh was it down? I think it was significantly down. Um, only by about 0.2 millimole. Can't translate that into milligrams per deciliter anymore. Is it four or five? Four or five. I, I think you points. multiply by 17 or something. Something, uh, yeah, 18. Um, 18 yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Um, so um, it was it was down. Um, and we also saw uh, glycated hemoglobin was down in our next study as well. So the diabetes risk markers are improving with um, time-restricted time eating uh, for sure. At this point, I'm really comfortable telling people, look, don't eat after about 5.30. And if you do that, you're probably going to live longer. Would you say that that's likely true? Uh, yeah, I think that 5.30 is tough for some people. And so maybe yeah. we might need to be a little more lenient and say 6.30. Like six? Um, Ooh, yeah, 6, 6.30 wow. because, you know, by the time you get home from work, sometimes it's, yeah. it's just tough. So if you put too great a time pressure on people, what I'm worried about is they go, oh, I have to eat by this time. I better stop at McDonald's on the way home and grab my dinner. And I'm pretty sure that <laughs> if, you, if you did that sort of thing, you will be undoing some of the good things of time-restricted eating. So, you know, I, I like time-restricted eating because you know, it's really hard to change everything about your life, to change everything yeah. that you're eating, to change, um, you know, to 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 say, okay, I, I don't want to eat this, I don't want to eat this, I have to change to be this diet quality. Um, and that's really hard for people to maintain for a really long period of time. Um, we've shown lots of that, lots of times when you have um, people who, who start, who get diabetes and start going to see dietitians, they have this immediate great response in changing a lot of their diets, uh, qualities and changing everything they're eating, but they slip back over time. And so, you know, I think that time restricting is great because you don't really have to change everything that you're eating and you're still going to have some some really good effects. Uh, but I think if you started to have bad behaviours because of time pressure, then then you're not going to see the improvement that, that okay. we'd hope to see. You make so much sense. You're basically saying if you continue eating whatever you eat now and you add time restriction, you're going to improve. But if you add time restriction and lower your food quality, you might not improve, which totally makes sense. 
Um, and and it, it's that where do you get compliance versus where do you get great data? And that's always been the challenge unless you're doing time-restricted feeding, you know, in a prison system or something. And um, yeah, we are, it we're is. already and, and so... We... Go ahead. I was say we're already so mean to people in prison anyway, and we feed them the worst food and treat them really poorly. I don't believe it's nice to experiment on them. So, <laughs> no. Well, we have an argument here that perhaps our prisoners are treated better than our nursing home folks. So, you know, the nursing Ooh. home uh, budgets yeah. are, are half the prison budgets, and so um, wow. in terms of what they're providing those people, so we've we've got a big uh, fight on our hands here. I think in in, in Australia, trying to improve diet quality. In, nursing home residents which is super important as well so um yes but uh yeah the uh i think that if you improved your diet quality or at least stopped eating all the things that you used to eat and drink uh with time restricted eating um you know you will improve diet quality a little bit anyway so hopefully you you know usually the things that people eat at eight nine o'clock at night are, are alcohol and uh ice cream and chips and you know that kind of poor quality food i think so so they are probably cutting that out with time restricting we don't find that people tend to move it some people do uh to move it from 9 p.m till 9 a.m um but you know we did that for our trial um that i was just talking about earlier that hasn't come out yet but we all we did was move an ice cream from 9 p.m to 11 a.m so we fed them during the trial um, and you know they they still improved glucose control just from having that moving that food around oh that's so cool so it's it's when you eat as much as as what you eat what do you do now that you have all of the benefit of all this research so like do you have breakfast do you have dinner like, like what what's your average practice when you're doing things the way you want to do them Right. So I've just come back from three weeks of holidays where I've done absolutely nothing <laughs> and I do need to reset, I think. So I'm going, I haven't started yet, but I will. And when I do it, I will do, um, when I decide I needed to lose five kilos or something like that, I will do um, like a three day a week uh, period. Um, I don't do what I tell my patients to do. And I tend to have a big kind of bowl of vegetables in the evening as my 500 calories ish. Uh, thing. Uh, and so I I would get a whole bunch of broccoli and cauliflower and Brussels sprouts and root vegetables, not potatoes, uh, and roast them in the oven and, and have them for my dinner um, on a fasting day. So, um, so I feel somewhat full when I do that. Um, the other thing that I do quite regularly uh, is um, uh, to have uh, breakfast and dinner and don't eat during the day okay cool that's so, not and, what i and said. that works <laughs> that works for me well, <laughs> and also when you say three days a week you're talking every other day you're not doing three contiguous right no so i don't tend to do three yeah three days together i tend to do every other day um and also i um i don't do time restricted eating um i mean i try I have I haven't really tried to do it actually. I should. I haven't I have never really tried to go. Let's eat between ten and six. Um and um yeah, I I haven't done it. I'm more of a if I'm gonna fast, I wanna go hard, lose weight and go a bit longer. So what we see with our time restricted diets is we see improvements in health, but we don't see a big change in body weight generally. So um you'll lose two or three kilos, um but some people do better. 
that's true. Some people do better, but most people don't lose much weight. But that's the exciting thing with time-restricted eating, I think, because you improve health even though you don't lose much weight. This is more of a meta question for you. So I, I've talked with you know, Sachin Panda, and he tends to go out and just try everything on himself, right? And he's like, oh, I told my mom to do time-restricted eating, and her you know, her diabetes went away. Like, who would have, who would have thought an early dinner would do that? Um, but so many of the people I've interviewed who are academic researchers have never tried the substances or the techniques uh, or just don't do the ones that they're studying the most. Why do you think that is? I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that, um, so, you know, I I exercise a lot. I do a lot of high-intensity exercise training. Never studied high-intensity exercise training, but I do high-intensity uh, interval training. Interesting. Um, and I um, ha- do do fasting as a as a way to stop to to claw back Christmas and 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 parties in the new year. Um, okay. Yeah. So I, I I do that, but I just haven't done time restricted eating yet. So um, okay. You're yeah, not alone there, by the I way. Like, like no, no judgment or anything. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's, it's an interesting. It's an interesting. I think it's a mindset thing about like wanting to know with a hundred percent certainty before you do it. And I thought yeah. you might have a thought about it. I've it's asked Craig Venter. Yeah, it's absolutely why I did fasting. So I've done that plenty, plenty of times. Um, but okay, that's your favorite, so that's what you do because it works. Yeah, yeah, and I actually okay. have also done a lot of four days a week, uh, so a thousand calories five days a week, and then eating one hundred and one on the weekend too. So uh, I've never studied that one, never tested that one, but that's another. It's one kind of I the fasting do. mimicking diet perspective, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, awesome. Well, so you have tested a bunch of the stuff, but not all the stuff. So I, I hear you there. Well, Leonie, thank you for sharing all this time and precious knowledge. And also thanks for doing the hard work to get the knowledge in the first place. I, I genuinely appreciate your work in the world and you're shedding light on something that we didn't know about. And I think every year from here on out for the next 10 or so years, we're going to just keep going, oh, wow, who would have thought that you know this food at this time is ideal? So thanks for being one of the pioneers. Great. Thank you so much. If you guys want to know more, there isn't a particular URL for you to go to. You can go to researchers.adelaide.edu.au-profile-leonihebron. <laughs> so um, that's, uh, that, that's something that will be in the show notes for you. But basically, you're going to see a list of academic papers because we are talking with someone who actually spends her time getting knowledge, not necessarily going out and being uh, an Instagram celebrity. So we're, we're learning directly from the scientists. And just one more time, thank you for being on the show. Great. Thanks for having me, Dave. It was fun. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services.
Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.